Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to be looking uh, just at verses 19 and 20 this morning. Again, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up, and clouds dropped down the dew. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word. O oh, Father, the scriptures do teach us that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Your word teaches us that the earth has been founded by wisdom. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be fools but to be wise. Bless us, O oh Lord for how we do confess our proneness to foolishness unless we are filled with your Spirit. Grant to us, even now, O Lord, through the preaching of your word, that we would see the glory of all that you've made around us, that we would see that truly the world was established by wisdom, therefore you are to be feared. Help us, Lord, that we might gain a heart of wisdom we acknowledge that the word preached without your spirit accomplishes nothing. Such is the hardness of the hearts of men. How we do pray that you would grant that in the preaching of your word, that it would be accompanied by your spirit. That even as Ezekiel was, at, was told to prophesy over the dead bones, that, Lord, even so, we read that the life was granted by the Spirit. Father, we do pray that you would grant life even now by your Spirit, for we do ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, very often, if you've ever been in a conversation with a person and debating about the existence of God, very often creation is used as one of the arguments. It's probably one of the, in one way or another, creation is going to be worked in uh, to the argument. And the argument is very simple. Uh, how could random chance produce such majesty as we see it all around us? How could everything work together so well without God? And the truth of these statements has been obvious. It's been recognized by every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth. The Bible simply declares it, that the heavens declare the glory of God, that even the unbeliever believes it. He knows it to be true. Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. He knows it and he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. If you were to ask, if someone were to ask you, what is the evidence for the existence of God? The answer is literally every single thing that's ever been made. Every single thing in the entire world, all of creation, the heavens are declaring constantly the glory of God. The most distant galaxies are proclaiming His glory. And perhaps 
uh, there's even, if you were to say, okay, yes, every single thing is proclaiming the glory of God, but if you were to say, what are the, what's the best evidence? What's, what's the most, the clearest thing that's been created that declares God's glory? It's actually evidence that's quite close to home. It's not uh, just the distant galaxies that are proclaiming these things, but we actually see the greatest evidence of God's wisdom, the very fact that God is the one who's created the world. We see it most clearly, not in the distant galaxies, but on earth. Uh, if you read the account of Genesis 1, one of the things you'll be struck with is the way in which earth is very much the focus of the things that God has made. Earth, in comparison to the rest of the galaxies and uh, all in the rest of the universe, is quite small, and yet uh, the first three days of creation are all about God perfectly molding this one place. And, and what this shows then is that if you were to look for uh, the place where God has shown His great in taking the most time to make the thing that's going to be the most perfect, the place to look for would actually be on earth. It's the things that are right around you. The things that when you open your eyes, you wake up in the morning. These are the things that declare the glory of God more than anything else. And even further, even further, we'd have to say that God's making of life, particularly within earth, is an even greater evidence that God is in fact the one who has created all things. It's there even more that we see God's wisdom. We see life being created on days five and six as God uh, perfectly forms on day five the birds of the air and the fish of the sea to inhabit the things that he had made in day two. We see then him making all the land animals in, in day six. And then above uh, even all of the other animals, the thing that he has made, the, the ones that he has made that is the crowning, not just of the earth, of even life, but the crowning of everything that God has made that shows more than anything else that he is in fact the one who has created all things is in fact man. Man, the only ones in the entire universe who are made in his own image, being so marvelous in comparison with all the other visible things that God's glory cannot be denied. If you were to, to ask then, where is the evidence for the, for the creation by God rather than random chance? The answer is, the greatest evidence is you yourself. You yourself are the greatest evidence. This could not possibly have been done by random chance. Think of it. Think of the glory of man as he's been created. The wonder of a conscious, thinking, moral being. The wonder of a being who is filled with the capacity for love and worship. Made with the capacity, even more so, for fellowship with God. Living in, uh, as Adam was created uh, originally, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness before the fall. And even after the fall, these things were not completely destroyed, such that God's evidence, God's existence is evident in all the things that he has made, because everything shows forth his wisdom, but it is especially seen in the way in which God has made man. These are all the things that are perfectly clear. From the very first chapter of Genesis, God has made all things. God has made all things. And everything around us declares the truth of this. And what's even more important to, to keep in mind with regard to this is that even the most angry atheists who argue, spend their entire lives arguing against the existence of God, who believe it their sole purpose to convince people that God does not exist, and they spend all of their time and energy doing this, even they will admit all the things that I'm saying. They will admit all the things that I'm saying. 
And they will yet say, there just has to be another explanation. It just can't be God. And so, for instance, Richard Dawkins, if you know who he is, he is uh, probably the angriest of all the angry atheists. He was debating with a Christian, and they were arguing about the existence of God. They were, this is the debate. And in his opening statement, the very first thing he said before the, the Christian had given any argument, or any, he's not even responding to a counter-argument, the very first thing he says in this debate is, I have looked around, and I've seen the beauty of all these things, and I've seen the, the, the beauty of, of, of the sunset, and I, I've seen it, and I know others have seen it. Other scientists, other atheists have seen it. And I have felt the temptation to believe that this shows that God has made all things. And yet now I know that there are better explanations. He's admitting the truth of what Romans 1 teaches before he even begins to, to try to tear down the arguments for the existence of God. He knows it. God has placed it in his heart. And the angriest of all atheists will on the last day stand before God and and God will show him those very things. It will, be, it will be just put out before him. The, the, the secrets of his heart will be revealed with regard to all these things. And he'll say, look, you knew. You knew and you suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. You knew because all things have been made by the wisdom of God. Creation reveals the manifold wisdom of God. Now, what, what we can say is that creation really does reveal a number of God's attributes. Romans chapter 1, his eternal power, his divine nature. Those are clearly perceived from all the things that God has made. So you, you can clearly see that uh, if all the, of these great and marvelous things exist, then surely the being who created all these things is eternally powerful. He has to be. He has to be. But here, what Solomon is getting at in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, is the wisdom of God. That everything that has been made, it teaches us that God is is in fact wise and in fact that God has made all things through wisdom. The wisdom of God is clearly seen in everything that he has made. And what this means, brothers and sisters, is that it is a great sin. It is a great sin and blasphemy to deny that God has made all things. It's a great wisdom. It's a great blasphemy. It's a great sin because you are denying that the world was actually put forward in a way and created in a way that was wise. You have to ascribe it to chaos. You have to look at the majesty of how all these things work together and say, mere chaos. And to say such a thing is great blasphemy against God. When God said, let there be light, he was, as the psalmist says in Psalm 104, wrapping himself with light as with a garment. That is to say, he was invisible, and he remains invisible. And yet, by creating all things, and particularly in speaking light into the world, it's not just that um, there is now a visible reality, things that could be seen, but it's also the case that in a manner now God can be seen, though he is invisible, because the creation is revealing him. That's what the, that's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 104, that God wrapped himself with light such that now, now you can clearly see things about God. He has been revealed. He wrapped himself with light so that you could know him. And, and again, the thing that is known is that he is, in fact, a wise God. And even more particularly, as we'll see, that he has made the world through wisdom. 
wisdom who is in fact a person, the agent of creation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the second of three passages that speak about the value of wisdom. Last week, you remember that we looked at uh, Solomon's description of the value of wisdom generally to people, people in general. This is the way you are to view wisdom. This is the reason why wisdom is so important. And then in verses 19 and 20 here, Solomon now describes for us and teaches the value of wisdom to God in that it was by wisdom that God has created all things. So wisdom is valuable to all people, but even, even, even more so, the height of the value of wisdom can be seen in, in the fact that the Father created all things by wisdom. And then the conclusion, as we'll see next week, is in verses 21 through 26, that if this is true, then what Solomon is going to say is that, that you, you have to have this wisdom. You have to have this wisdom. And you can obtain it. You, you can attain to real wisdom through the fear of God. Now, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. Uh, first, we're going to look at the agency of wisdom. So what does it mean that God created all things by wisdom? Uh, secondly, uh, we're going to look at uh, how God's wisdom is manifested in creation. So God as the agent, then God as God's wisdom being manifested in creation. And then thirdly, God's wisdom being manifested in providence. So uh, who this wisdom character is and then creation and providence. Now, the thing to remember about this particular text, and as we go through the, the book of Proverbs, particularly chapters uh, 1 through 9, this is always something to keep in, 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 in our minds, that wisdom is not a mere attribute of God. Wisdom has never been presented as a mere attribute of God. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom here is a description of the second person of the Trinity. And if you remember, we looked at that and we saw that in chapter 1, particularly in verse 23, where wisdom pours out the Spirit. Attributes do not pour out the Spirit. Uh, pouring out the Spirit is, is, a, is a description of the relationship of persons. God pours out the Spirit. The Son pours out the Spirit. The, the Spirit is eternally proceeding from both the Father and the Son. And so the fact that then the Spirit in chapter 1 can have a call that goes out, so wisdom is able to call, and wisdom then gives a promise. If you heed my words and you heed my rebuke, I will pour out my Spirit upon you and cause you to know uh, not just God's Word, but my words. That very clearly is a reference to, to the Bible, the Word of God. But now wisdom is saying, I will pour out my spirit, and also the Word is in fact my Word. Just as the Bible we could say is the Word of God, so too wisdom says the Bible is the Word of wisdom. Uh, therefore, we know that wisdom is more than an attribute. There is a distinction between wisdom and God, uh, and yet there is also there is an identity. Wisdom is uh, eternal. And wisdom is, has the attributes of God. Wisdom is able to do things that only God can do. Uh, and yet there is a distinction. And particularly, as we'll see when we get to chapter 8, where, we, where, where there's even greater detail that Solomon gives about wisdom's role in creation, uh, there we see that, that uh, wisdom was present in eternity and that wisdom was brought forth even as a son. So in chapter 1, we had the distinction between wisdom and the spirit. Wisdom gives, out, uh, gives the spirit. And then in chapter 8, we had the distinction between God and the wisdom such that wisdom is actually the Son of God. Wisdom is brought forth before all of creation as a son is brought forth from his father. That's the way in which wisdom is described in chapter 8. Now, 
with regard to this particular text, the thing to keep in mind is, and the thing that, 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 we, that is important for us to, to understand with regard to this first statement, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. One of the things that this implies, and this is, this is given in much greater detail in chapter 8, but one of the things that this, uh, this implies is that the one who is wisdom is in fact eternal. Wisdom is in fact eternal because creation is described in verses 19 and 20, and yet wisdom is already there. Uh, wisdom is already there. Now, there are a number of important things to keep in mind with regard to the relationship between time and eternity. Uh, sometimes it's tempting to think that God exists in a kind of um, quasi-time sort of like we do, where there is like a timeline, and there is the creation of the world. And obviously, from, since the creation of the world, there's been this succession of moments. We're, we're moving through history. And then, and then there is, it's, it can be tempting to think that, well, uh, before that, there was this time, and it was moving along. And then there was this one point where God's created all things. And that's the, the point where we say that history begins. And we don't know what happened before because no one was there. But there was this moving forwards. And then we get to a point where God then created all things and then it keeps moving. And then there's the end. And then God keeps going all the way to the end. Where God exists in terms of the relationship to creation on either side. And he exists in the middle as well. But this is actually not the way that the scriptures describe the eternity of God. Uh, this was something that the early church dealt with. One of the questions that uh, Augustine had to field, one of the, the objections to creation was, you know, uh, what was God doing uh, before he created all things? Uh, what was he doing? Why did he, um, today we like to think of the earth as being very old, and so that's what people say, uh, and the earth is not old. But um, with regard to the age of the earth, the, the old objection used to be, well, look, God spent so much time before he actually created all things. What was he doing? How, how are we to understand that time that came before God created all things? But brothers and sisters, this is actually uh, a, a faulty understanding of what eternity means. Eternity is not that there is a succession of moments and then God creates something and then it keeps going. The idea is that, that there, was, there was simply no succession of moments at all before God created all things. Such that then God is always outside of the forward progress of history as it moves through time. To say that God already was is the same as saying, not that he existed beforehand in the sense of existed beforehand in time, it's to say that he is simply transcendent above all things that are bound by time. Such that then for God, the past, the present, and the future are all equally present to him. Every moment is equally present to him. And he does not move through time as we do. And this is one of the big differences then with regard to our eternal life and God and his eternal life. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, he still moves through time. In his human nature, he's moving through time. As God, he's never moving through time. And when we are raised from the dead on the last day, we will still have a succession of moments. We are bound in some way by time. It'll be a time that never ends. But we will not have the eternity of God. And so, here's the big, here's the big uh, important question then as it relates to this text. If there was a moment when time began, and that was the moment when the earth was founded and the heavens were created, as, as Genesis 1-1 teaches, when was the beginning of this time? Well, we, we know Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If there was a moment when that began, and before that there was nothing, there was nothing in terms of time, 
then anyone who is in existence has an existence separate from that time is God and is eternal, is in a completely different category from all of creation. And the reason why I am drilling this home so hard with regard to this questions of eternity is because, uh, one, it can be, it's always tempting for us to place our own creaturely limitations on God. And when we think about eternity, as I've described it, hopefully you've seen, uh, it's completely incomprehensible. It is beyond the ability for the human mind to conceive. And it's tempting for us to think, well, God is like us just a little better. But he's not. He's completely separate. And even as you think about what kind of being could exist in eternity, the answer is, again, only God, which means not even all the angels. When were the angels created? They were created when God said, when the scriptures say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens there would have included the creation of the angels. So if you were to ask then, how old is the oldest angel? The answer is not more than 6,000 years, maybe getting close to seven, between six and 7,000 years, every angel. They're not any older than that. All angels are bound by time such that they have a succession of moments, will always have that succession of moments. And yet, in a completely separate category is this one who is called wisdom. Wisdom, who is eternal. Because we are told that by wisdom, God made all things. Therefore, wisdom already was. Therefore, wisdom is eternal. Therefore, wisdom is God. And that is what we are to understand about the agency of this wisdom. That is to say then, the way in which Solomon is describing wisdom in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, particularly chapter 1, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 here, and then and even more so in chapter 8, is in the exact same way as John describes the logos, the, the eternal word in John chapter 1. There is an identity with God. There, there is a distinction from God. And yet this one who is distinct from God existed in eternity and all things were brought forth through him. This is the one who is wisdom. If, if you think about what it means to live a wise life, it means that you have been able to apprehend the one who is wisdom himself. And that is the eternal son of God. He is the one by whom all things have been made. Now, why is he called wisdom? Why is he called wisdom? The answer would be because everything he does is done wisely. Everything he does is done wisely, which means if God, the Father, creates the world through wisdom and by the Spirit, as the scriptures clearly teach, then what, what must be true then is that all things in the world manifest this great wisdom from God. All things manifest this wisdom from God. Now, there are a number of ways in which we see that this is in fact the case. And uh, it's, it'd be good for us to, to remember then the way in which Moses has ordered the account of creation, Genesis chapter 1. And one of the, the things that shows the wisdom of God is the way in which, uh, even as we read in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of order. He orders all things. And we see that in Genesis 1 with his divisions. Everything is given its own proper place. All the animals are made according to their kind. The waters above are separated from the waters below. Then the dry land appears. Everything has its own concrete, distinct sphere where it's, it's not a blending all into one. That would be chaos. But there is, in fact, an ordering that is seen through all the, uh, of the divisions. The same thing is true with all the animals. All the animals are created according to their kind. 
and, and, and even then further, all of these animals are created, uh, created according to their kinds, then they are each placed in the exact uh, area, the exact ecosystem where they can thrive. So there is this, this threefold uh, sphere of existence, so to speak. There is there's the heavens above, there is the, the sky, there is the waters, that's day two, and then there is the earth, the dry land. And then on day five, parallel to day two, God being a God of order creates the animals to inhabit the sky and the waters. And they, these, these animals were created according to their kinds such that they are perfectly fitted to be able to live in the air, birds have wings, and in the water. Fish have everything that's needed to be able to live underwater. Then on day six, parallel to day three, God creates all the animals, the land animals, according to their kind, such that then they are perfectly fitted to dwell in the land, to make use of all the vegetation that was created on day three. They are perfectly fitted to, to live in all of the, the places that God has made for them. They are perfectly fitted for all of these things. And this is the order, if you think about going back to the introduction, this is the order that Dawkins saw and admitted was there. He sees it, he sees clearly there's an order. And the order appears to be unbelievably wise, unbelievably wise. And yet, I'm going to ascribe the order that I see to chaos. And that's the move that every evolutionist makes, that every atheist makes. I see all the order, I can't deny it, and yet I will attribute all of it to chaos. Now, this actually is a point of, of comparison. It's a, a similarity between uh, evolutionists, modern-day atheists, and uh, every pagan that's ever lived in the history of the world. This order was recognized by the pagans too, and they had the exact same principles. We see the order, we have to understand it, but, there is, but the pagans said there is no transcendent God, therefore there was this, this chaos at the beginning, this eternal matter that was chaos, and somehow that chaos was overcome in order to produce all the order that we see. The evolutionist says the exact same thing. In the beginning, there was chaos, and somehow all that chaos was overcome in order to produce all the order in which we see. It's the exact same way of thinking. And what this means then is that for all of the supposed scientific advancements, all the progress by which science is perverted and corrupted in order to argue against the existence of God, all it's done, for all its progress, has brought mankind back to the exact same position that he has been in his unbelief ever since the beginning of the world. He's brought exactly back to the beginning and can be declared, will be declared in ages to come as foolish. How could you possibly have thought that all these things could be one, that they could all be coming from chaos. Just to hit, hit this a little further with regard to uh, particularly the problems of, of, of evolution, the way this is, this is typically resolved, there is this random chance, and random chance has created all things. That's, that's the idea. You, 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 we see the complexity of human life, and there is this random chance. Na nature has selected. Uh, nature has selected the best, and over time, we have this increasingly complicated form of life until we get what appears to be very wise, but really it's just nature. And nature has no will. Nature has no ability to, to do anything with regard to, uh, to, to setting certain things. It's, it's just random, but, but nature, nature is the thing that does it. Now, we're immediately uh, brought face to face with a logical fallacy. 
where there is an inanimate object nature, which, which the evolutionists will admit is an inanimate object, and yet it's given personal properties as a figure of speech. So you have things like choice, selecting, natural selection, that sort of thing. But then when, you're, when, when you ask the evolutionists, well, how could random chance actually produce so many things so wisely? They then say natural selection, but now natural selection is not a figure of speech, but it's actually a real thing. So an inanimate object now actually is choosing. The reality is, is if it were completely random, there is no selecting. There is no selecting. You can't use the figure of speech. If, if you're going to say that nature is really choosing, then you would have to say that nature is worthy of your worship. And such is the way in every age that men have always been led by the hand to worship the creature rather than the creator. They begin with matter and they say somehow this chaos was conquered. If this chaos was conquered by matter, then matter is worthy of our worship. And thus today we have a very much growing uh, desire for people to worship Mother Earth. All these things are connected. Uh, one uh, theologian of the 19th and 20th century says that, says that the only difference uh, in the 19th and 20th century said this, the only difference between materialism, so evolutionists are materialists, and I'll, I'll unpack the, the phrase and it can be a little difficult. The only difference between materialism and pantheism is optimism. The only difference between materialism and pantheism is optimism. He says, you know, you can look at like evolutionists where they believe in materialism. The only thing that exists are the things that my eyes can see. And you think, well, that seems very different from all these pagan religions, the, these pantheists, these polytheists who just believe that everything is God. But what he's saying is that there's actually no difference. The only difference is, is that if you're optimistic about what the material can do, then you're going to then end up saying that this material is divine. And that's all that a pantheist is. He's just an optimistic materialist. If you really do believe that nature is selecting, why would you withhold your worship from it? You owe your very life to this nature that continues to select. And this has been the way people have always thought. Now, uh, the thing that is this still going to be true, though, with regard to evolution or, or paganism, is that there is still this idea that all things have been created from chaos. All things have been created one way or another from chaos, which means there is a, a denial of exactly the point that Solomon is emphasizing here, which is that by wisdom, God has created all things. We expect to find wisdom. To attribute the wisdom of God as he's manifested in the world to chaos is a tremendously bad sin. It's a tremendously aggravated sin. So consider, if we just give a, 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 a brief example, an illustration, Let's say that you were walking through the Sistine Chapel and you see the beauty of all of these paintings as they've, as they've been done. And you would say, surely this was done by a great uh, artist. It's a great work of art. The greatness of the work of art clearly shows the magnificent skill of this artist. If you were then to say that Sistine Chapel could just as easily have been created by taking paint and randomly throwing it against the canvas. That's what chaos is. You, you, could, you could not say that without, without offering the deepest possible insult to an artist. To say that my masterpiece, let's say you know, an art, a piece of art, let's say you could, you could look at it with the, with the tiniest of magnification, you, you could look at the, the most minuscule details, and all of it, all of it is 
perfect. It's flawless in every way. For you then to say, you know what? Um, if you were to take you know, a million canvases and just throw chuck paint against it over and over and over again, eventually you'd get, you'd get things just like the Sistine Chapel. You would get it and it would be perfect. Do you see, to do that is to say that the world is not really made by wisdom. And to do that is a tremendously aggravated sin against God. Because the thing that cannot be denied, that no one denies, the pagans, the evolutionists, the atheists, and the Christians, that no one denies, is that actually the world is made magnificently. It is, in fact, like the Sistine Chapel by comparison in terms of a masterpiece. And the, the skill of the artist, his wisdom, so to speak, is very obviously seen. No one even tries to deny that. And so if you on the last day are going to say, you know, I, I don't believe in God, I don't believe, I don't believe that he has given me enough evidence to believe in him. He's not given me enough to know that he actually exists. This, 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 these are the questions you're going to be asked. How is it that every single thing in all of creation and your own heart tells you that this is true could be so magnificently made down to the minutest detail, everything perfectly in its own order, and yet God not exist? You see, in, in the evolutionary scheme, the order is an illusion. So in the evolutionary scheme, the same thing with pantheism, in the evolutionary scheme, all things are one. So there, is, uh, there was first one you know, uh, very small uh, uh, you know, uh, bacteria or something, the first life form, and it slowly grew and changed, and then there's change over time, and then all this diversification happened. So what that means is that basically we exist on a continuum with things like fish, we exist on a continuum with things like apes and monkeys. You know, you, this is where they get the, you know, the, the pictures with the, with the apes slowly changing over time, which has uh, literally no evidence behind it at all. Um, you, you get, you get these, these, these changes wherein we're, we're not different than birds, we're not different than dinosaurs, we're not different than any of these things. There's just we exist on this continuum because ultimately we're all one. Ultimately we're all one. However, it really does appear that we're all made according to our kinds. But that's really an illusion. The wisdom that you see is an illusion. But you, see, but you see, the difference with regard to the scriptures, going back to Genesis chapter 1, is this, that everything is in fact made according to its kind, which means we are not like fish. We are not like apes. We are not like any of, the, any of these other creatures. We have been made as our own kind. And you cannot work back small changes ad infinitum and get to a point where there's a common uh, thing between us. Because God saw the birds are to go in the air, the fish are to go in the water, and mankind is to live on the ground. And that's how he made us. That's how he made us. And that's very clearly the way in which everything, everything around us uh, is ordered. Everything is declaring the truth of these statements. God has manifested his wisdom by creation. God has manifested his wisdom by creation. As Solomon says, the word, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up. There you have the, the same threefold divisions that are found in Genesis chapter 1. You have the heavens, you have the earth, and you have the seas. God has made them wisely, each in its own way. But even further than that, brothers and sisters, God has not even just created all things and left it to just go on its own. He's also manifested his wisdom and providence. Notice what Solomon says of the very last phrase, and clouds drop down the dew. Dew now, now we're not talking about uh, the initial creation, but now we're talking about 
God's providence. And here particularly, Solomon is looking at the, the, the cycle of water, so to speak, that is so necessary to sustain life. And he's saying, look, the clouds dropping down the dew, that happens by the power of God. It's not that, that God uh, set, set the, the clock, so to speak, and then just abandoned his creation. What Solomon is saying is that God oversees and rules over every single thing that ever happens in this world. And it's not just that the way in which God has made all things manifests his wisdom, but everything that happens manifests the wisdom of God. All of his providential acts. How could it be that God could care for and sustain life over so many thousands of years? How could it be that all this could be sustained, even with all the blunders of mankind and all the blunders of everything? All the, the killing that goes on by all the animals, and yet God uh, even, even has so ordered animals eating one another to be put in a perfect balance, wherein life is able to be maintained and continued. Uh, all the things that happen with the weather are overseen by God himself as he causes all things to work out such that his wisdom can be seen. It is by wisdom that God has made all things, and it is by wisdom that all things are in fact maintained. All the orderliness, all the beauty, all the majesty, these things cannot be denied. They never have been. They never have been ultimately denied by anyone. And all of them point to the glory of God. The world makes known the glorious wisdom of God. The world was made by wisdom. This has clearly been seen in the things that have been made. It cannot be denied. You cannot deny it without offering a great insult to God. And therefore, what are you to do, brothers and sisters? Uh, well, the fool, as the scriptures teach, the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Everything I've said is the reason why that's true. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. God must be feared. He must be feared. And this is the reason why it is the fear of the Lord, as Solomon says in chapter 1, verse 7. Why it is the fear of the Lord that is, in fact, the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because all things have been made by wisdom. But even further than that, we know what was future for Solomon and past to us, that not only is it true that all things have been made by wisdom, but all things have been remade by wisdom as well. The new creation has begun in the one who was wisdom, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who yet became man. And just as people can look at all the wisdom around us and ascribe that to being chaos and foolishness or whatever else, so too people say the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's wisdom was manifested in him becoming man and dying on the cross. The thing that, as the Apostle Paul says, is also counted as foolishness, but is in fact the great revelation of the wisdom of God. It is the great revelation of the wisdom of God. And therefore, what are you to do, brothers and sisters? You are to fear the Lord. You are to fear the Lord, the one who has created all things. And you are to fear the one who has remade the world in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May it be that God would grant you this heart of wisdom, for we know the human heart is so hard, but we know also, as the prophets have declared, that God is the one who removes the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, you are glorious beyond 
beyond our comprehension. What a wonderful thing it is that you truly have made all things. And where could we look? Lord, we could go to the furthest corner of the universe. And yet we would see the glorious wisdom of the way in which you've made all things. And how wonderful it is that you've made us your, your people, made in the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've given us even the greatest evidence of all of all these things. Our very selves, as the psalmist has said, where can I go from your spirit, Lord? I can go everywhere, and yet you would be there. But, but Lord, even more, you are the one who's knit me together in my mother's womb. And before I've even done anything, Lord, all of my days have been written down in your book. What a wonderful thing it is even to contemplate the greatness that you have revealed of yourself to us, O God. Help us to see this. Help us to have high thoughts of you, O God. And forgive us for not prizing wisdom. We can see, as we saw last week, wisdom truly is worth more than anything else in this world. But Lord, how much even more do we see the value of wisdom? That wisdom is the one who's created all things and to whom we owe our very existence. Help us to honor him, O Lord, even your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.